like we should have, I watch a lot of shows and I feel like we should have a more consistent, regular opening. Like, hi, welcome to Generational Change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. Uh, if you're if you're not a member, please subscribe. Like it's we're supposed of, to have a whole It's eight minutes show. past the hour. Good morning, San Francisco. Oh, my hair's still out. Oh. Uh, All right. So how are you doing? I'm I'm good. Mm. Why? Oh, Why no, are you it's... asking me? Was there another mass shooting today that I'm just not aware of? Not that I'm aware of, but hey, one day without a mass shooting. That's great. That's better than, uh, I guess, what the weekend was like. Uh, I, look, I've been predicting for a very long time. I think it's going to get worse. I think that- Alex, that's a very nice thing for you to say. I appreciate Thank that. you. I appreciate that. We have great guests. Guys, Wednesday night, Jesse well, Ventura. Well, I'm here a little early just to preview. Please don't do that. We are- we are going to come on the podcast at approximately 7 p.m. We are going to talk with Jen. She's a wonderful person. I, I, I'm not loving it. I'm not loving mm-hmm. it. And you're merging it with a little bit with your Trump. In terms How of- How do you even identify Trump coming out of the, the, the- It was what you were saying. The body. No, please don't do that. It's not good. So yeah, guys, we have Jesse Ventura coming on Wednesday, which is for me huge. It's like my really short of, you know, like Willie Nelson and Snoop Dogg. This is like- the best. Like, this is really cool. I love Jesse Ventura. I've always liked him. Jesse the Body Ventura. I liked him. I thought he was fun as a wrestler. Like, yeah. I thought he was fun. I thought he was amazingly good as a mayor. I thought he was good as a governor. Like, I just, I have a lot of respect. I find him to He's be- definitely the greatest what if that didn't run for president. That much I would say. Um, what's interesting is if you look him up right now on his, like, wiki, it says he's Green Party. Well, the Green Party was where he was supposed to run for president, and they decided that Howie Hawkins was a better candidate. I just, you know, the thing about Jesse is he's so, he is, to me, personifies independent and patriotic. Yes. And I and I respect that a lot about him. No, he really has, like, the whole package. Like and he, he he's also, to me, like somebody who really exemplifies the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Mm. And he is just very, I've always found him to be, like, a true patriot. So I have a lot of respect for him. So we've obviously got a lot of things to cover and we will cover them with our wonderful guests from Gen Z for Change, as well as speaking with Yang Gang and UBI supporter Jermaine Johnston, State House Representative in South Carolina. And so I think it's uh, obviously very important that, depending on- I think I have to move over. I'm off. I'm wrong. Our chair legs have to like. <laughs> Can I have a little space? Just a little. You don't have to. I'm trying play. to have us be even in the in the in the shot. <laughs> We're obviously going to talk about what happened this afternoon. Um, You're going to have to tell me. But before you do, can you tell me what the years are for Generation Z? Like what what year? Gen Z starts. Um, I need to know this before I talk. How young are these people? Oh, probably. I think they might even be in, well, I don't think they're in high school, okay. but they're like so these in are young college, people. but yeah. Well, what is Gen Z? Gen like Z, what? Begin, well, Gen, uh, it, well, millennial is 83 to, I think like 95, I want to say. So I guess Gen Z would start, yeah, like around the, so Okay, so Gen like Z, 95. Up to 25, I, I think. Okay. All right. Hey, all, all ICIA. Because the millennials were kind of disappointing. No offense. What do you mean? I just... I, I just think like as, as a Gen Xer, we just sort of, the millennials are just kind of like, eh. mm, I don't so know I have hope that. for Gen Z. Well, we're definitely in a lot of trouble. So we need a lot more. Uh, oh, now tell me what happened today. 
So uh, for those of you who may or may not know, uh, local politics speaking, uh, Anna Eskamani over the weekend endorsed Charlie Chris for governor. Um, If we had to endorse somebody for governor, uh, I would obviously endorse Charlie for a number of reasons, not the least of which is, you know, he's I mean, look, the odds of beating DeSantis are slim to none. But I would say for somebody who has won the governorship before, who has a pretty decent record regarding the environment and is a pretty likable guy, uh, I would say that, you know, that sensibly speaking, I mean, when I when I met him at the event in Orlando that Jen wasn't able to attend, and this was almost a um, you're, Gen, you're, Gen, Gen, you're Gen X, Vaughn. Um, you're you're my you're my generation. Gen X. I'm Gen X. So when uh, when I met Charlie and when I was at that Dem Gala event, which was a year ago, I said at the time, I said, oh, Charlie's going to win the nomination. Like that was. But there's definitely been this huge like internal conflict in the state party here between people that are supporting Nikki Freed versus the people that are supporting Charlie Chris. And it's just per usual going to get ugly. Yeah, that's they all like to be on a fool's errand together and waste as much money as humanly possible, which is why you might say who you would support, who you would endorse. I wouldn't anybody. I got to tell you, because the truth is, it doesn't matter. And so it's a fool's errand. And it's just a matter of who do you want to be running on running it for you? (laughs) That's basically it. No, it's definitely. But but I think it's a good conversation to start with our two wonderful guests who are going to be coming on from Gen Z for Change. Because one of the great Gen Z, if not the great Gen Z, and I think she's Gen Z. You know, I could be wrong. I don't know. I Anna might, or maybe, no, I think Anna's millennial, but she's like right on the cusp of, because I think Anna's only like 28 or 29 or something like that. So I think she's just past Gen Z, but she certainly is a great representative of Gen Z. So of course, uh, without further ado, um, this is a wonderful grassroots group, which I believe is based in Texas. I could be wrong. We'll learn more. Uh, They're as, uh, very big in the TikTok universe, apparently. Well, we're getting a little big in the TikTok. I don't want to get Are no we? ego thing. I, I, don't, I hate to say that. it, guys. I'm sure you'd be surprised to know I don't follow that. Well, so. you're going you're gonna to be hearing about it, so it, it'll be fun. But without further ado, Tegan Leschler, Elise Joshi. I hope I said it right. Leckler. Leckler? I don't know. I I, think I'm right. I I don't know. All right. Tegan and Elise, welcome to Generational Change. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Did we say it right? Uh, My name is Tegan Leckler. Tegan Leckler. Okay, so you got... I can't get anything right, so I I, I just... I knew knew Leckler. (laughs) Like, I kind of figured that, and I actually was going to say to you, it it might be Tegan. That's actually what I... But I didn't, but anyway, welcome. And it's Elise Joshi, like Yoshi. Did I say... I said Joshi, didn't I? Did he? (laughs) Did he? I was still fixated on the first one. Like, I wasn't even watching, listening to him butcher number two. No well, worries. before before we get into the very interesting story of the day with what happened here in Florida, um, obviously, please share with us what Gen Z for Change is all about, what the organization stands for, and what your ultimate goals are. We see a lot of activity as of late, uh, you know, especially relating to what's been happening in Texas, especially with what happened in Uvalde. Uh, but what is more or less the makeup and the mission of the organization? Where did you come from? Yeah, so Gen Z for Change started off uh, during the height of the COVID-19 
pandemic uh, in late 2020, when in-person organizing just was not possible. And uh, we turned to the app that, you know, all of Gen Z was turning to, you know, when we were bored in our rooms during quarantine, and that was TikTok. So we're, we're a coalition of about 500 creators on TikTok with a collective following of about half a billion people. And our purpose is to use the awesome. power of social media to actually create tangible social change that goes beyond views and actually impacts communities in a real way. And um, we started as TikTok for Biden, just thinking we could use our platforms to, you know, phone bank and text bank and and try to um, get Trump out of office. And we quickly realized that there was a lot of opportunity here that goes beyond the 2020 election, goes beyond electoral pro- politics and um here we are today as Gen Z for change. Yeah. So where, but where are you guys from actually? Like, like, are you students? Are you like, you know, you two individuals? And obviously you don't know all of the people that are involved, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, Go ahead, Tegan. (laughs) Oh, I was just going to say, we have a really wide uh, range of ages. So we have folks on our leadership team that are, uh, we have a 16 year old on our leadership team. So uh, literally in high school. And then we have uh, myself, I actually graduated from with my master's degree last May, so I'm out of school. Uh, but the majority of students or people who are involved in Gen Z for Change are college students or going into college, graduating from high school this May. And are you guys and predominantly I'm, this country? I'm sorry. What we? I was. Oh yeah, yeah. I think everyone in the organization is based in the United States. I myself mm-hmm. am, am from the Bay Area and I'm a second year student in college. Um, but yeah, everywhere across the country. That's because the TikTok thing is global, yes? Yeah. And yeah. our our uh, leadership team is all over the U.S. So you talked earlier about um, Texas, which we have um, a person in Texas who's really involved in local activism there. But we have folks in D.C., in Denver, uh, in New York, in throughout California, uh, Virginia. We have people all over. So it's it's really a national organization. We are stuck in South Florida where... <laughs> Very little, if anything. I noticed none of the people you referenced were here. Yeah, that's okay. We do have some Florida. We have (laughs) South Florida. Oh, I don't know about South, (laughs) but Florida, we do have Florida. (laughs) Yeah, it's got to be in the I-4 corridor somewhere up between St. Pete and Orlando. Well, speaking of Gen Z for change, obviously we are very big supporters of Maxwell Frost, who is running for uh, Congress in Orlando. Uh, He is a Gen Zer. He is 25. I think he's the minimum age that you can be in order to run for uh, Congress, uh, which is great. Um, We need to get a lot more uh, people at the local level, especially elected, that are non-corporate and progressive-minded, especially when it comes to economics. That seems to be the biggest issue that we're facing today. Are there any particular policies that you guys are really pushing for that you would say is, you know, kind of where like the, you know, like the heart of focus is really at? Elise, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Gen Z for Change, we we focus on anything and everything progressive policy. Um, There's intersections between, you know, health and housing and 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 labor and all of that. Um, We don't specifically hone in on on just one. Um, But yeah, I think when it comes to what we're seeing right now in the South and uh, the attack on education and the attack on uh, teachers, LGBTQ plus rights, 
there's been a heavy focus within the organization to do all we can to protect um, the the people most affected by GOP uh, policy. And um, with that comes, you know, talking about climate, talking about labor, talking about education. So, um, yeah, that that's that's just almost taken. You want to take a. I think that that's definitely yeah, and I think that that's very important. If uh, Tegan, if you have any, if you have any thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I was just going to say that we all kind of come into this work with our own areas of passion. I know, like some folks are really passionate about you know LGBT rights. Some are really passionate about climate. Some are focused on policing or housing, and so uh, whenever there's opportunities for us to get involved, um, folks kind of follow the areas they're super passionate about. And then we'll bring it to the group and be like, Hey, I think we should do something around this climate thing that's happening or this, you know, gun violence thing that's happening. And so, um, we, we're kind of all over the place in terms of progressive policy, just, um, depending on what folks are interested in and what's happening across the country at the moment. And that's the nice thing about having, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. ahead. I mean, that's that's the nice thing uh, about having, you know, 500 creators in our coalition. We don't, really need to prioritize. And what's uh, great about, you know, having that many creators is those creators have specific audiences that know that, that platform as, you know, someone who's going to talk about climate or someone's who's going to focus on Texas and Gen Z for change is decentralized in that way. And I think that's what we've seen is very, very effective. Do you have any potential goals as far as, um, you know, how you look at uh, helping, I know a lot of times when organizations like this get really big, there's this constant um, clamoring, if you will, for attention regarding like, let's say local candidates, you know, can you help us out? Can you spread our message and that type of thing? Um, What we try to do here in South Florida is fight for change through service. That's really what it's all about uh, from our perspective. Um, You know, whether it's uh, community gardens, which is a big thing, beach cleanups, um, you know, helping the homeless, um, Well, it's just anything you can do to be involved in the community and help where you're needed to be helped. It's it's not any one thing. It's just this general idea of um, representation through service and and the idea that people that are running for office should be service minded people. Um, And that's and that to me is important. So like like when we talk about candidates, we support and we're trying to like promote this whole idea, this paradigm shift that campaigns should be service-based campaigns, regardless of the candidate. Like if you're if you're really in this for the right reasons, then you'd be serving. Show the community what they're supposed to be getting. I mean, that's sort of my thoughts on organizations. Like, however we can help, we'll help. You know? Yeah, I totally resonate with that. And I think that's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you today is because I really love the idea of, you know, politics through service and and not only, you know, talking about what we envision the future looks like five years from now, but being on the on the ground helping folks get to five years from now, right? Because it's not a given for everyone. Um, with our organization, I think we all, I don't know, we all are pretty like-minded in that way too, where we don't like people who just, or I guess we don't, uh, we aren't as excited maybe about folks who, who talk the talk without walking the walk, right? Like I think something that our generation or is more innate to our generation is wanting folks who can actually like put the rubber to the road and do the work and back up everything they're saying. And so, um, yeah, we, we definitely, like to prioritize politicians and people who are running for office who have 
established records of community service and community organizing and um, just doing the work, I think, on the ground level as well. Yeah, it's funny. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about if we do this again in a couple of years, these are the people that you want, like running your comms. Yeah, well, (laughs) that would be that would be wonderful. Um, We also recognize that as bad as the GOP is and there is a huge problem. I would say probably as much as any reason why the GOP is so detrimentally bad. I mean, obviously, they're playing the culture war for all it's worth right now politically. And that's all gamesmanship, which, of course, puts people's lives at risk. What else is new? That's what happens in politics. Um, But there is definitely a distinct difference between, you know, we talk about corporate uh, special interest money basically dominating both parties. Uh, So it really doesn't necessarily matter. But when it comes to people who identify as, let's say, progressive or liberal versus somebody who's libertarian or conservative, I I would definitely say that the environmental issue is probably one of the most stark issues where you can clearly see that there is a difference of opinion in terms of how uh, serious of an issue this is and how much of uh, a devoted effort we need to be making to it, I would definitely say that over the last four years, the best organization in terms of really galvanizing a lot of people and ultimately winning some really landmark races was the Sunrise Movement. Would you guys agree that the environment is as big of an issue as anything that you guys are fighting for? Yeah, they're oh. going to be stuck living with it longer than any of us. Well, they're not in Florida, so they don't have Doesn't to suffer Doesn't matter. As they're, they're going to be around longer to have, like, the worst problem. Before, I, and before, and before you answer, did you guys happen to see what one day of rain does to North Miami, where she's from? Did you see what happened in Miami the other day? It was it, it, was there not, like like a fish? No, it was like three, it was like three four feet of water. It was yeah. it was crazy. Oh and, my gosh! Oh yeah, yeah. When we say Miami's going underwater, it, it's it, it's going underwater. Oh yeah. So, yeah. I mean, oh, so yeah. I grew up in the Bay, and my I mean, I, I tell people this all the time now, but. I, my first experience wearing masks was not for COVID. It was for wildfires and to protect myself from the smoke um, that, you know, resulted in me losing days off from school. And I know my community was one of the lucky ones. I, I've seen uh, areas very, very close to me burned to the ground. And um, I've had friends, you know, leaving their homes and evacuating them before you know, a fire was about to hit. And the truth is, you know, if the area burned by wildfires doubled in the last 50 years, but um, it's only going to get worse. It's going to intensify and more area is going to burn every year. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm a runner. I'm running through the hills right now. It's getting drier a lot faster. Um, so yeah, I, I have a personal connection to how bad climate change is. And, and truthfully, everybody in this country at this point does climate changes here now. Um, but yeah, so cl- climate is actually my biggest issue. It's the one I talk about the most on my platform, but Gen Z as a whole, and therefore Gen Z for change takes the climate issue incredibly serious. Seriously, we've been working with the Sunrise Movement. We've been working with different offices um, pretty regularly at this point to see, you know, how can we use our platform to talk about one of the biggest issues in our generation? Yeah. And before we, before I lose the train of thought, because it happened, you should check out a podcast that we did a while back with a woman who's in Ireland and she's a goat herder and she herds these goats that are native indigenous goats to that region. And they eat the dead they eat the dead foliage yeah. and they're using them to prevent wildfires. Like there this are goats be- in Northern California too. So in, I, I live in Berkeley and they'll so, have like goat days where there'll be goats just hanging around the, the hills. But this is, this is something that should have always been explored as a means to 
It's just ecologically sound to let the goats eat what they want to eat, have their happy little goat lives and just move them around from place to place, you know, so to prevent fires. So I don't know. I just thought it was really cool. And we interviewed this woman who she she breeds the goats and raises them. And then she has her flock. And it's just really cool. And they do it to prevent fires. That is really cool. <laughs> yeah. I would have thought after what happened in Australia in the outback that that would have been the final straw in basically saying, yeah, something's got to be done. Um it is kind of hard because most people are not really willing to change their lives. At least you know this well, you're in the Bay Area. So, you know, it's uh, it, it goes without saying that we, we do need to kind of rethink how a lot of this needs to be done. I mean, I'm basically a pescatarian in my diet. Um, uh, my diet has drastically changed in terms of incorporating, uh, you know, primarily vegan meals. Um, I know it's not easy for everybody to just change the way that they eat. But we've noticed, especially when Jen ran for Congress, you know, being around millennials and especially Gen Zers, a lot of people have kind a lot of, of vegans. Evo evolved into <laughs> veganism. Would you say that that's a big <clears throat> thing? There's a lot of vegans noticed? amongst you. <sighs> Yeah, yeah I, I, would, I think. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, take him. Please. I was just going to say yes. I know quite a few vegans. I think definitely we've seen across the country more vegan restaurants and uh, more access to non-dairy foods in grocery stores and whatnot. Um, I would also say that there is some systems work to to be done in terms of making sure that non-meat uh, foods or non or that plant-based foods are available for folks. So like making sure that that's all available via WIC uh, and that, you know, folks can, can choose to have plant-based lifestyle if they want, depending uh, regardless of their income status. Like I think right now veganism kind of has a, a reputation of being for folks who are better off financially. Mm -hmm. um, but I hope that, you know, as we move forward, it can continue to expand into something that's accessible for people of any income. Yeah, I think, I think that's important. Think, we were just, I was just talking about food desert. No, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, you were just, I was just going to say, we're getting out of at the concept of choice. And I think what we need to be doing is making sure we're actually making choice between whether you're driving or whether you're taking pu public transportation, like a legitimate option, you know, People aren't choosing to drive. The vast majority of Americans wouldn't prefer to drive. They just have no other choice but to. And when we're talking about systems change, it's, it's about making those options as accessible as possible for everyone, no matter your ability or your race or your class or any uh, or anything else. And so I think what Gen Z for Change mostly advocates for is you know, making public transportation free and accessible, uh, making, you know, like dealing with the, the uh, uh, food deserts and eliminating them, you know, um, making, you know, solar, not something for people who are rich enough to put a solar panel on their house. And, you know, all these things that will make it accessible to anyone. And I think right now in our current way that America is functioning, people don't really have an option but to choose the less sustainable one. I think yeah. that on purpose yeah. by design. Yes. Go with that yeah. Question. As long as we all are aware of it, then we can actually work to change it. It can't be like, it's not an accident that this has happened to us. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the next evolution we really need to be focused on is really getting our 
you know, sharpening our skills regarding policy in terms of ones that I think most people would definitely get behind because they just make the most sense. Um, you know, obviously universal health care is an easy one. A living wage is an easy one. Um, you know, significantly reducing our carbon footprint via the military industrial complex, which is the biggest emitter of carbon uh, in the world. That's the biggest uh, problem right there. Like know. everybody in this country, all the residents could have solar on their roofs. But until we rein in the MIC, it's nothing has more. Nothing has more power on Capitol Hill. I mean, obviously, private insurance, big pharma, uh, big oil, but big oil. And a lot of these are all interconnected with the MIC. Yeah. So uh, right. dealing with that is a huge thing. Um, in terms of how we mitigate it, I think there's a number of ways that it could be done on the domestic side. We absolutely need high-speed rail in the United States. It's been ungodly too long, the fact that we haven't even really prioritized it. It I hasn't think, been profitable enough yet. Yeah. I mean, I think if Bernie was president, that would have been a conversation that would have been happening yeah. a lot more uh, feverishly as needed. And then I also think if we're talking about like what we could do at the local level, like community gardens is a huge thing for a multitude yes. of reasons. Uh, growing fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, it is the soil that is a huge part of the problem. Um, you know, a lot of what people eat today is just not that healthy, but if you could grow it yourself, if you can have composting, uh, we have this great organization that's in Hollywood, Florida, Hollywood, Florida, uh, that does composting, which is great. And then, of course, having bee colonies. You know, we have to protect the bees. If we don't, then we're done. So like urban things that can be done, like things that just regular people can participate in. Right. But it's not prioritized because it's not profitable yet enough. And that's the problem. But community gardens are important for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, yeah, the food part of it, but it really does, especially in neighborhoods that are food deserts, a lot of the people in those neighborhoods, it's would never have the opportunity to even see that process of growing food. And it's really good for kids also. Like the whole getting in the dirt is really good for kids. And especially in neighborhoods that don't get exposed to anything but the quickie mart up the street. Um, it's a, no, it's true. I mean, it's, it's. And believe me, we've, we've been through it. Like we had a, the first community garden that we attempted to, I mean, we, we built a community garden at the campaign house uh, when, when we ran for office. But then we attempted to build a community garden in a neighborhood that desperately needed it. And it was the, so good. The affluent gentrifiers from North Miami decided to come into the shut neighborhood and they shut it down. So it's uh, it was you know. so good. And like there were so many people that were coming over and that lived in the neighborhood that were getting involved and getting to know each other. And I don't know, it was just really that neighborhood needs some love, serious love. So yeah. it's just very upsetting. And now it's not happening there, but we have, it's sad, but we, we, I still think that it's a really important thing to be doing. And, um, but one thing we did learn here is that high schools that have space are an excellent place to have community gardens because that has been a successful project that's happened down here. And it's really cool. What do you guys see as being some of the important focus regarding the environment? Well, I think you're hitting it on the nail. Community gardens are kind of, are really exemplified the solution to all of the climate needs because it is a collective solution and a local one. And I think when it comes to climate change, our very individualized mindset of, you know, what's your carbon footprint? Um, put a solar panel on your house, drive an electric car, um, yeah, these solutions 
we're not realizing that individual actions have caused the climate crisis. Collective ones are going to fix it. And community gardens are a great way of bringing people in your community together for a sustainable solution. And that applies to more than just the ag aspect of climate. We need community, you know, distributed wind and solar power that's community owned. Um, we need public transportation that is available to everyone, accessible everywhere. And, and um, I mean, the same thing applies for, you know, we, we need green jobs that uplift the people within the community itself rather than gentrified communities. And so I think, you know, what, what, you're, what you guys are saying are just is, is applies to absolutely every corner of the, of the climate movement. And as long as we uplift everyone, we uplift communities, we bring communities together, like that, yeah. that's going to combat climate change better than anything else. My main area of focus is anti-poverty work. And so I will always say the answer is uh, helping lift folks out of poverty and creating systems where, you know, folks have the, um, the ability to not only survive, but to thrive. And so I think within the context of climate, like, right, it's also an economic issue because who has time to be at the community gardens, right? It's the people who aren't working three jobs or who, who can afford the electric vehicle. Like it's the person who has the money to be able to do that. Right. And so I think, um, what you're talking about with community solutions is right on. And then also partnering that with, you know, just uplifting folks out of poverty, supporting people who are experiencing poverty, um, so that they are able to participate more in these community kind of solutions to climate. Um, I, another one is like composting. Composting is awesome, right? But where I live, at least, you have to pay an additional fee to have right. people come p pick up your compost. And so the neighborhoods that compost are the ones who are the really affluent neighborhoods, right? And then the, the less affluent ones don't do that because we're not going to pay an extra fee, right? And so just making sure that people have access to these climate solutions and these programs that will help lift us out of the uh, climate crisis. All of these things, in my mind, should be municipal responsibilities that you pay for just like you do with any tax system on a scale that's basically a sliding scale. So transportation should be free at point of use and you pay for it in whatever your taxes are, whether you, you can, property taxes is fine. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but, but like whatever it is, you have free at point of service. And I, and I think that's the key thing. Like all of these should just be services that are included. Um, with just living in a civilization. It's mm -hmm. not like we don't have the means for people to have housing and education. And all, like we, we, we can totally do that. And it never ceases to amaze me that there's people that somehow have been beaten down to believing that there must be a struggling underclass of people that just like, there must be homeless people. There must be like in order for the system to be the way it is. And I'm thinking what, like, why do we accept this as like, it's so ridiculous to me that I have to convince people that we all do better when we're all doing better. Like, it's not complicated. And yet we're like begging for scraps. I actually find it somewhat infuriating, more so on behalf of your generation, actually. Like, it's really ridiculous. So what do you guys see as sort of the responses you get? I mean, obviously, we know how difficult it is politically to deal with, um, you know, we're going to talk about the boomers, okay? Uh, 
that was a play on words, but that was no, I wasn't intending to do that. Um, I'm not a what, boomer. No, I'm, I'm just Gen saying, X. okay, boomer. That was, me, that's been like a thing where whereas basically people who are just completely um, resistant. That's why I always found the whole thing calling themselves the resistance so ironic because it's like the resistance is really the ones who are resisting the most change that we really need. So why is it from your perspective or how is it from your perspective communication been like trying to talk to people that have a lot more, obviously, generational wealth? Who's worse? The boomers are the worst, right? It's not Gen X. Don't blame it on Gen X. We're just- I don't know. I feel like for me, at least the, the, um, reception from older folks has been like gratitude, like pretty abundant gratitude is what I've received, I guess. I don't know about you, Elise. Um, but usually it's, it's younger people who are, you know, conservative or whatever, who have something to say about what we're doing, but, uh, largely from older folks, I at least have, have received a lot of gratitude and appreciation for the work that Gen Z for Change does. And, and, you know, I, this is going to take an intergenerational push and the movement is going to require not just Gen Z. And that's particularly because we have three years to peak emissions. Gen Z is not going to be able to become the representatives to create the change that we need. We need the change to come from the people who are already in office, the people who technically have caused this issue. And so, you know, what I've noticed, I mean, we're all in an echo chamber. That's how social media is designed. So, of course, we get more positive comments from Gen Z, boomers, millennial, like it, regardless of the generation. But, um, yeah, it, it's it's usually kind comments. Um, I, I know how the algorithm works. But even if it's a negative comment, I don't even think it's because they're a boomer. It's just we all they've seen some of the worst effects of, you know, U.S. policy um, and we're seeing, you know, different ones. And the hope is that, you know, we can get them to understand that climate is affecting them too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the problem I notice with people that I think of as boomers or even people like Biden, because he even made this comment once on a show, is like, well, when I was a kid, you would just come out of school and get a job, work minimum wage and everything was fine. And yeah, because the minimum wage hasn't gone up since then. So they're coming at it from a perspective of it was actually feasible to live on that kind of life. And so when they hear people complaining about it, they're completely failing to see what has happened, you know, economically. And that's because they live in a bubble. And so to them, sure, you could go work a minimum wage job and just do, you know, work at the factory and whatever. And you're fine. Biden actually, um, I mean, look, we don't have to go into the whole, you know, how this has not been a good presidency. But to me, when he came out the other day and said, no, oh, when I went to college, you paid $300 a semester. And I, I was thinking, OK, this is really. Which really is why they don't give a crap about student loans. Yeah. Like they can't wrap their heads around anybody else's experience, but theirs from that time. And yet this is where we are. So why would they care about student loans? They can't fathom that. Like you must just be so irresponsible or whatever it is. There's, there's also something to be said for a lot of people who hold this resentment towards those that are seeking to, you know, to eliminate. I mean, the truth is, if you're going to eliminate student debt, you have to move to tuition free public college and trade schools. I mean, that absolutely has to happen because it'll just be a cycle that continues. But 
the thing that we hear so often, as I'm sure you guys do, when it comes to the average person saying, well, why shouldn't we cancel student loans? It's because, well, I had student loans and I paid them off. So you should do it too. It's like, it's It's like hazing. Yeah. It's ingrained in this country that, well, I suffered. So you must suffer as well. And I think we really need to unwind that whole mindset. What do you guys think? Yeah, this is why I love like getting FaceTime with folks and having conversations with people, because I think I talk to so many folks, even in my hometown, I mean, who are like, we should not cancel student debt. We should not do X, Y, and Z, because just like you said, I had to struggle through it or, you know, it was super cheap when I was in school and I lived on minimum wage and I did it so you can do it too. Um, And I think just... I'm a very relational person. So building relationships is something that comes really naturally to me and, and um, something I really love doing. And so I love sitting down with folks who ha- who say these things and just kind of, you know, putting a face to the stories of student debt. Because I think, you know, you can hear, regardless of the news channel that you're watching, you hear these stories and it's just like numbers, right? And if you're someone who numbers don't resonate with you, like it's not going to matter that, you know, what the student debt crisis is, or it's not going to matter the demographics that it would help. But the second that you put a face to it and you start to personalize that issue and you say, well, I, I worked three jobs in college and I did X, Y, and Z to save money, or, you know, I, it would help my friend who is in this situation or, or even talking about the fact that most people who have student debt didn't finish college because they couldn't afford to continue going. I think once you start kind of breaking breaking it apart and putting a face to some of these issues, people are a lot quicker to empathize and understand. The news tends to sometimes uh, sanitize things or make them really sterile. Like it's not, it's not a human who has that student debt, but the second you put a a person behind that, I think uh, in my experience, at least, and and that doesn't always work, but people at least uh, have an easier time understanding where you're coming from, even if they don't agree, they can they can understand what you're saying. Elise, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it gets into the concept that we were talking about with climate of just needing to feel like we're all in this together. And in I, I think it, it's important to know, you know, just of course it benefits them when we eliminate student debt because you know, the, these people who are on debt, who have all this debt, you know, aren't getting mortgages, you know, aren't buying cars because they don't want to incur more. And um, that affects the, you know, U.S. economy. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you can get into that. But I think what I find, what I want to get at when it comes to this issue is that, you know, we need to learn as, you know, Americans just to like, have a collective mindset of even though I don't directly benefit from this, I can still support this policy. And um, that's something that I think goes into so many different issues of just how do I benefit from this? How does this affect me? And that's really not what's important sometimes. Why, like, we need to be able to somehow convince people no, this doesn't benefit you but it benefits other people and we should have, you should support this purely because, you know, this could help another person. And it's interesting messaging because you're trying to, you're trying to convince somebody of something, but also trying to change the mindset and like the perspective through which they see everything. And um, that's, that's really challenging, but um, I'm rambling, but all this to say, you know, Taken was making 
incredibly good points. I, I agree. And I always talk about the importance of the collective. Like people don't understand the nature of collective. When you start talking like that, they start calling you names, you know, and all that stuff. You're a socialist, you're a communist. But one of the things that people never really look at, and this is one of the things I think about just with gun culture in general, and people always want to come up with sort of like policy fixes for issues that are so much bigger than that. But one of the biggest things is we don't have a feeling of collective in this country. We don't care about each other in this country. Like that's not something that that we, we do. And so it's so much more fathomable that we have so much more violence in this country. And all of these things that we're talking about that would build a better collective would also then inherently decrease any sort of violence because when people are more connected in a collective, they tend to have more respect for other people. Like it, it's just this huge societal shift that needs to happen in terms of how we see things. And I think that's the biggest miss right now with the gun issue um, that a lot of people are not talking about, as far as I can tell. And that is economic anxiety will absolutely drive people to their breaking point. And when you think about how is it that we could get to a point where people actually want to take up arms and hurt kids, it's like, no, there is no logic to it because there's no more logic to the person. This has become hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, hurt people. And and we've got a lot of people in this country. They're very, very hurt and broken. And, and I think that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, we also, oh, sorry, go ahead. ahead. We also don't have good systems, though, to talk about trauma and or address trauma. I mean, I think what you're talking about, I completely agree with that hurt people hurt people. And like we have all these systems that make it so that when someone is hurt, either number one, they're a cis male and we have the structure of masculinity where they can't talk about being hurt. They can't, you know, ask for help. They can't seek help. They can't cry or they're seen as non-masculine. Or we have these stigma surrounding mental health. We have, uh, you know, barriers to access for mental health treatment and or medication. And so I think like the, to take it yes, hurt people, hurt people. And like, we just don't even have a vocabulary or really any systems for talking about hurt, for talking about pain without uh, immediately going to this place of like, you know, stigma. And I think even on a broader level, like trauma of like indigenous genocide or of racism or of, you know, the way that uh, black folks are treated in America. Like we, we haven't even begun to address this trauma. And I think that until we start to talk about that, it's not like hurt. People are going to continue hurting people, I guess, until we're able to talk about and respond to trauma and to hurt. Yeah. I can remember, um, this is anything that's you, uh, but <laughs> I, I'm actually, um, I came up in the internet age. So I I went to high school right around the time where it started to become a thing. I was a sophomore when I was still chiseling on stone. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I was a, uh, I was a sophomore in high school when Columbine happened. And I think what's kind of unifying in the sense of like where you find, I mean, you even said one of the most common elements of the mass shooters is um, young white men. Well, it's but but again, there's there's a unifying issue there 
And it's not just white men. They are the most, for sure. But the unifying issue is uh, very bad relationships with women, uh, violence. 60% uh, of them have histories of violence in their families, domestic violence situations in their families. And um, that never gets dealt with properly. And then we also know that there's loopholes. That's yes. the big, that's another problem. But they're all young. All the people that you're talking about are under the eight, like 18 and under mm-hmm. and white men. Boys. Well, I think that 18 and under piece also is something that needs to be just thought about more. Cause like when we talk about kind of the issues uh, in America in general, I think a lot of times folks are like, well, older folks who are standing in the way will be gone soon. And then, you know, Gen Z will be in charge and like everything will be rainbows and butterflies. But like, as we've seen lately, that's not the case. Like there are a lot of young folks in this country who are, do have like a lot of, you know, white supremacist ideologies and also like have these really dangerous, um, I don't know, just thought processes and beliefs. And so I think um, just just latching on to that piece, like I would really urge folks to also consider the fact that like Gen Z is not, uh, we are we can help with everything that's going wrong, but we're as a whole, like things aren't going to be perfect just because Gen Z is in charge and we still all have to be doing the work and all have to be pushing forward regardless of which generation is is, you know, leading the, leading the work, I guess. There is something to be said for the culture that is created online. It can be very, very devastating. One of the reasons why um, it's so pathetic that there is so much of uh, attention in such a negative way being thrown to the LGBTQ community, specifically trans people, is they're already mentally fragile to begin with. If you add in the element of constant beratement that comes from social media, uh, there's a reason why, you know, there's so many stories about suicide. I mean, talk about one of the biggest problems when it comes to access to guns is, you know, people, I, I mean, I can see it and I have very thick skin, but my God, I mean, I see some things online where people just go to town and it, it's in such a cruel way. Uh, there, there's so, there's such a lack of decency. It's, it's all about, uh, you know, I, I guess what you would call like style points because you're trying to look cool to certain people. I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like or how difficult it is right now to go to high school uh, at this particular time. And when everyone is online and, and you, you make the wrong move and God knows what can happen. Have you guys seen that type of thing? Would you say that there is uh, it, it's it's very difficult nowadays, especially with everything that's going on to kind of navigate the whole social media sphere and people feeling like they're, you know, being left out or they're being targeted, you know, inappropriately. I mean, I could easily see that being an issue, but, I, I, you know, I'm not living it. I'm not living with what you guys are living through. So I am curious as to how you see it. I, yeah, I, I, my job is on social media and I have uh, about 116,000 followers and that comes with a lot of love in the comment section, but it also comes with a lot of negativity too. And, you know, at 17 years old, when I started my account, I had to deal with death threats at the worst of it. But, you know, hate comments and just people who like do not see me as a human being. And I think that's what really is at the heart of the social media issue is we've objectified and we've 
you know, failed to see the people who were scrolling through as legitimate human beings who have feelings. <laughs> and um, I've, I've personally faced the effects of that. So yeah, without question, um, social media has become a huge issue. And, you know, it, I'm, I'm, you know, have a big platform, but even for, you know, young kids in high school um, are experiencing it as well. Yeah, I think this is where things were better when I was a kid, because I, I got to tell you, it's like if you were going to talk crap, it was to someone's face. It was you, there was no hiding between the Internet. And if you went too far, you'd get punched like that would be it. And that's how things got handled. It wasn't and people weren't as cruel um, as, as easily cruel because they can't hide behind a screen. I don't know. I just think that that's a huge reason why people don't connect. I think people in your generation have more connections that are less deep. You've got more or less meaningful connections because you're, you don't spend the same FaceTime, the same one-on-one -on -one time. You're, it's all this. They, even in the same room, they're sitting there texting each other in the same room. Like, I don't I, I, tru don't I truly this. believe that social media is our greatest asset and it's our greatest detriment at the same time. There are many great things that we can do with it. And there's also a lot of bad things that could be done with it. People are mean. Yeah. Cliche as it may seem, but with great power comes great responsibility. And we have a lot of responsibility on our hands these days. It's very hard to weed through a lot of the, the, the negative emotions and a lot of things that people are doing. But I think it really gets back to what, you know, sort of brings this conversation full circle and the whole idea of, you know, generational change, Gen Z for change. We need serious systemic change in this country. And if we don't get it, you know, it's almost like these mass shootings are a warning sign. They're, they're like a warning sign of that society can fall apart. Like people really think it's not possible that we could. I mean, again, God forbid we're even talking about the prospect of how crazy it's getting that we could even conceivably talk about another civil war. But there, we are such a divided country right now, and there are so many opportunists out there that are constantly like kicking the, you know, the hornet's nest to say, yeah, yeah, keep fighting, keep fighting. You know, this is good for business. It's like, no, this is bad for everybody, and it's going to get worse. And that's why, you know, we feel that when we focus on the issues that are really the most important to the collective, again, uh, that's where I think we really get the most positive traction. Would you guys agree that we really are in perilous times right now and that we really need to become sort of like this well-oiled machine if we're going to if we're going to get out of what we're, you know our our what I would call very dire circumstances right now? I I I don't I don't think that the gun violence and the shootings right now are warning. I think it's a consequence of failed action from the past and I think what's important now is seeing us less as divided by, you know, GOP and, and the de Democratic Party and more of working class and the very few people actually that are causing this problem. You know, almost 80 percent of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck right now. They're one bad medical bill away from, you know, homelessness. And that that is the majority of Americans. And that is unfortunate but it also means it, more than unfortunate, it's horrible, but it also means that we have a way to like bring people together because we are all affected by what a few people in this country are doing. And we do not currently have the infrastructure right now to 
uh, take on the the minority that are causing the most issues. And we really, really need to start building that progressive infrastructure from the bottom up. Um, but I think having that mindset of, you know, we're all in this and it's, it's the many, uh, it gives me optimism that we'll be able to accomplish what we need to in the, the time that we have left to deal with climate change and a number of other issues. What can we do to help you guys? What can we do to help spread your, your mission? What can we do for you? You guys are talking about all the right things. I mean, mm -hmm. just keep talking about this. Keep talking about what working class people are dealing with, uh, what people from, you know, just marginalized groups as a whole are dealing with. And, um, you know, prioritizing that above anything else. And, you know, you guys have the right mindset, so... Yeah, I would also say, like, my message for literally everyone of what you can do is experience joy and help others to experience joy when possible. Like, I mean, as we were talking about before, like, the world is so heavy, and there's a lot going on, and a lot of it isn't awesome, right? And so um, I think, though, coming back to that, like, community-based mindset, like, having a community of people where you can take care of each other and also... Uh, experience joy together, make sure that your people are experiencing joy and that you are like that. Uh, is that going to change the entire world? No, but I think that even even helping to improve one person's world uh, is something that like, that's, that's change that I'm happy to make at least like I'm, I'm content with at least just one person. So yeah, just keep talking about the things you're talking about experience joy, help take care of other people when you can. And yeah, just just you know, stay in it, stay, stay in the fight. You guys have been fantastic. Uh, needless to say, uh, we're huge advocates for what you're doing. Uh, anybody who has change in their name, of course, is welcomed on our channel. So <laughs> you know how that goes. Uh, but I certainly hope that we can have this conversation again as we go forward. You guys are, uh, you know, definitely doing what is absolutely necessary. And, and we do need to have more of these conversations inform more of these coalitions. I think if we do that, I think we're definitely going places. Um, you know, there, there is, uh, there is something to be said for, you know, wanting the credit. We just want to help. And I, I think that that's, uh, that's a big part of the battle. So, uh, Tegan, Elise, anything that you guys want to plug before you go, you know, please do. The floor is yours. Elise? <laughs> um, Gen Z for Change is pushing a ton of actions this summer, and we're really excited um, to, to show you guys all the different digital tools that we'll be creating. And yeah, follow Gen Z for Change on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and um, you'll have opportunities in the very near future to uh, participate in the work that we're doing. Do you guys do any in-person things? Um, we've done in-person, uh, work in the past, usually in partnership with other groups too. Um, and if, and if we do, you know, fo following us on our socials, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, we will definitely be making some clips. Uh, we'd love for you guys to share them on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all those wonderful places and anything that we can do to help you we're guys. We're a small but mighty channel. Yeah, we're small but mighty. <laughs> We've ever done that. But that's, uh, but that's why we do this. Uh, and we're very grateful that you guys came on. Uh, thank you so much for what you do. And we certainly look forward to chatting with you again in the near future. Thanks, guys. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. They were so cute, those girls. Yeah. Uh, it, gives, I, it gives me hope. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It it's like, whew, thank goodness that they're, Alex, are you Gen Z? Uh, I think I'm Gen Z. Yeah. 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 Yeah
think so. Okay. When were you born? Uh, 1998. He's Gen Z. Okay. You're Gen Z. -er. You so, I mean, I, I feel hopeful, but I'm telling you that stuff skipped your generation. So we've got almost a thousand <laughs> followers on TikTok now. We've had a second comment go viral. Only this one happened to go viral because you said you're not voting for Joe or Mayo Pete. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that we've, it's like, We've gotten thousands of likes, but the comment section is littered with people who are like, it's all your fault. You're going to cost us the election. Yeah, yeah. It's like in TikTok. Yeah, in TikTok. But isn't that only like young people? Oh, you'd be surprised. So is it that young people are that conservative or that there's old people on TikTok? There's old people on TikTok. Okay, okay. Uh, that makes sense. Okay, that I understand. You, see, I you were telling me like that was the attitude of young the people. Thing, no, the thing, thing that's interesting about TikTok <laughs> is that people can comment. People are really good at commenting on TikTok if they're not good at posting videos. So you'll see that there's a huge community. You know this. There's a huge community of people who are on TikTok who don't actually post content, but they love to comment on people's posts. That's a common thing, which is just like Facebook. It's like Facebook. It's another it's form people, of Facebook and you, Twitter and all that. People that don't do criticize people that do. But you know, honestly, though, this is why I don't. I don't want to read that crap. Fire breathing, Rob. What is my opinion on Anna Eskamani endorsing Charlie Crest? Um, good for her. Uh, I don't have a, 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 like Anna basically based her endorsement on Charlie being the best candidate for the environment. I like and, Anna. And I like what? Anna. It's it if, is what it is. Anna, if Anna's putting the environment front and center as the reason why, and Charlie has basically been very good regarding Big Sugar and uh, FPNL. I mean, that's what you want. That that's. I mean, again, there you know, beggars can't be choosers. Not a lot to choose oh, from. Oh, I'm sorry so, to hear that. Another agnostic. Yeah, my people are taking over the it TikTok. It is what it is. Well, but, my people are shouldn't be that back ass words. Well, back ass words. You can't even speak straight. You're not even smart. Ass backwards. Right again. I there no. I need to, yeah. maybe I need to light my. But blood. without further ado, we are very very pleased to welcome. A, we we are are we honorary members of the Yang Gang? I mean, I guess what well, you would call us. Well, I uh, very much appreciate the Yang Gang. We do. I have a lot of respect. Uh, we're gonna. You're Yang there Gang? you go. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. we always like to share with our guests, and especially somebody who uh, really appreciates and likes Andrew Yang as much as we do, despite what some people say. Uh, no one was more gracious or hardworking or made a bigger impact on Jen's congressional run than the Yang Andrew Gang. Andrew Yang. 100%. Yeah, and his peeps. Definitely, you know, I mean, talk about putting in the work. They also had the best food at the convention in, in Orlando. Well, that's, state, well that changes state, everything. At the state convention, I'm just saying, they had the best food set up. So I'm without further ado, somebody who is a very proud member of the Yang Gang and is an elected official in a very, very important state, South Carolina. So is this a forward party? No. Interesting. But could be now. Now, well, listen, we're all thinking forward these we're days, all, we're but trying. trying to anyway. He is a member of the Democratic House of Representatives in South Carolina, seat 80, but is now running in the new seat, 70. Jermaine Johnson, welcome to Generational Change. Hey, y'all. Hey, y'all. Thank y'all for having me out here. And, I, you know, I heard y'all talk about the four part. Look at my hat. Coincidentally. Oh, there you go. I love <laughs> it. Awesome. Coincidentally. Yeah. yeah. You know what? It's it, Jermaine. That's it's probably, where to do it. Yeah. That's how to do it is do yeah. it at the state, local yeah. level. You know, and, and Andrew, this is the thing about him, people. He's very smart. He is. And, and he understands how reason. He uses reason. It's fascinating. Yeah. Reason, passion, and justice. See how. Uh, so, talk a little bit about that. I mean, uh, how is this run for you in terms of partisan wise? Like, you're running as a Democrat, or are you running not as a Democrat? 
So I'm running as a Democrat, uh, you know, for, for my seat again. Uh, but the thing is, the good thing about what I have going on is I appeal pretty much to everybody. Um, I was out at my polls today, this morning, you know, because we're allowed to, you know, be out there and greet people who are coming to vote. Uh, and uh, a lady came up to me today and when she said, uh, she says, hey, Jermaine, I- I'm, a, I'm a Republican. I'm a lifelong Republican. But today I'm voting for you. You know, so you know, it's, it's, it's that type of treatment that I get with a lot of individuals. I got some text messages today from, from some other Republicans that said they voted for me today. Uh, so, you know, I, I like to have the uh, I like to be talking to everybody. You know, too often we sit around and we uh, we, we talk with a bunch of bobbleheads. You know, people like, it's the only people that agree with you. You know, and I don't like that. You know, I, I like to talk to everybody and make sure everybody can feel like I'm the representative. So when, but so you have open primaries then. We have open primaries in South Carolina, and it's fantastic. Oh We're stuck in Florida, my friend. We if are, we had open primaries, yeah. we would have been gone so yeah, long ago. True, I mean, yeah. no, that our, no. one of our biggest hurdles is that we have closed primaries. Now, Jen, Jen ran for Congress in 2020, as you may know, against Debbie Wasserman mm-hmm. Schultz. And unfortunately, one of the reasons why so many of these representatives, especially at the federal level, are able to stick uh, where they are, not just because of obviously all the corporate money, but the fact that these districts are so gerrymandered that the only way to actually unseat them is through a primary. So it becomes very difficult in order to do that. And one of the reasons why we think if there is going to be any type of third party evolution in the United States, it is going to be through the forward party, because Andrew is advocating for two things that will literally change the electoral infrastructure in the United States. And that, of course, is open primaries and ranked choice voting. So be that as it may, uh, what kind of attracted you to, you know, the Yang gang in the movement? Was it all about UBI or was it something more to it than just that? It, it was something more to it. Um, so in the very, very beginning, uh, I was I was a, a Cory Booker supporter uh, and, and Cory Booker was like he was a guy who was uh, he was talking about, you know, hope and inspiration and you know, just talking about just very, just a very uplifting type of individual. Um, and he just kind of played on my emotions, you know, and I, I thought about that. I was like, man, this guy's awesome. You know, he's amazing. I met him. I said, man, you might be our next president. You know, this is before he had even announced or anything like that. I said, man, you might be our next president. Uh, but then I looked at the Trump supporters. I looked at Trump supporters and I looked at how they, the, the effect that Trump had on them. Uh, and it was the same way that Cory Booker had on me. And I was thinking, I said, man, I, I said, how could I talk bad about a Trump, a Trump supporter or a Trumper when that's the exact same effect that Cory Booker has on me is just by emotional, like my emotional state. I said, no, we have to look for somebody who's actually talking about, you know, solving the problems that have gotten us in the situation in the first place. So I went back on my search and I started looking and I came across a guy talking about you want to give everybody a thousand dollars a month. Hello, this shit, this sounds interesting. You know, and I said, man, let me let me look more into this. And he started talking about other different things and why he was talking about it. And when he talked about automation, you know, I, I was like, man, this is this is pretty cool. But then I went to my Walmart and my Walmart, I actually had a robot riding around in my Walmart. You know, I was like, oh, my God, how many jobs has that automated away just by, you know, we had a, a, a robot that was doing uh, inventory and cleaning the floors at the exact same time. You know, so that's pretty much what sold me right there is that, that he was the only person that I could find that was actually talking about, you know, solution based, uh, you know, information, things that could solve the problem that we're that we were facing at that time. So after that, I was sold, man. I was sold on the Yang Gang. You, bre- you brought up an excellent, excellent point, Jermaine, especially being in South Carolina, you know. You don't have to like Lindsey Graham or, T- or or Tim Scott, but you know what? Uh, don't hate on their voters. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And 
I see that constantly, especially as you have obviously seen over the last few years, particularly with, you know, a lot of suburban liberals. There's just this knee jerk reaction to say, you're a terrible person because you voted for somebody that I don't support. That never, ever, ever works. In fact, it will always have the opposite effect of your of what you're intending. And it does to me. Yeah, I'm obstinate as hell. And if you're going to tell me not to do something, oh, I'm going to do that. Spoken like, a true, <laughs> spoken like a true only child. Let me tell yeah. you, I cannot stand voter shaming. Do yeah. not do that to me. I don't want to hear. I honestly, I am the person that will purposefully vote for the person you're wanting me to vote against. Like, yeah, I and I don't do want to hear nothing about how, you know, you can't vote one way or the other, especially in South Carolina. I mean, you know, there's probably a lot of people who vote for, let's say, Jim Clyburn, but oh. they also vote for Tim Scott for senator. Yep. So you, you can't, the, the judgment that is made is is very short-sighted. And what I really like about what Andrew has advocated for is this idea of not left, not right, forward. Now everyone's like, no, that's just centrist mindset. Actually, it's not. It's really, let's get the hell out of this. One side's good, the other side's bad paradigm. Mm-hmm. And let's just focus on the issues that I think is the greatest attraction to what Andrew's been advocating for and why th- there really is this, it, it, you, like you say, it's small but mighty, but this camaraderie amongst people who support this idea of whether it is UBI, whether it is ranked choice voting in open primaries, there really is this like wide mix of a lot of different people from a lot of different yes. walks of life. Reasonable who are just like, people. Yeah, we're, we're just like, hey, we're cool, man. Let's, you know, let's figure <laughs> out ways to get things done. I love yeah. that. The reasonable yeah, yeah. Where are you, um, Jermaine, in South Carolina? Where is your district? So it's in, uh, like, on the borderline of the city of Columbia. So I'm right here in the Midlands, in the middle of the state, uh, but I represent the lower part of the county. Uh, it's, it's, uh, my original district was very, very, very uh, diverse. You know, I had black, I had white, I had everything in between. I had Republican, and I loved my district because of, it, you know, it allowed me to talk to people who didn't think like me. You know, I think my uh, my my black voter age population was only like 30 percent. You know, so I had to go talk to people who, you know, didn't think like me. And that's what allowed me to, to really build relations with individuals. You know, the, the uh, you know, I just had a me and my wife just had a baby about five months ago. Um, yes. Yeah, th- thank you. And, uh, you know, who the first person to call me in the hospital was called me in the hospital to congratulate me. You know who the first Andrew person was? Yang. Nope. Ralph Norman. Ralph uh, Norman, Ralph Norman, the super far right Republican guy out of South Carolina who who doesn't do anything Democrat, you know. And he he called me in the hospital to congratulate me uh, and my and my wife on having on having his baby. So that just lets you know that it's not about it's not all about partisan stuff, you know. It's not all about being a Republican or a Democrat. It's about families. It's about you know you speaking to individuals because if I had had I not built that relationship with him, had I not talked to him, had we not had you know, sat down and, and built that camaraderie, you know, I, you know, who, who knows, you know, he would have thought I was just like everybody else, you know, uh, just super far on the left and him being super far on the right. And that there was no type of, uh, you know, willingness to, to talk to each other, you know, and after me and him got to know each other, man, he calls me, gives me a personal cell phone number. He sent me a, uh, a signed picture of me and him from Washington. You know, I mean, it's like, dude, like, dude, like people think this dude is a crazy far right guy, but he's like, he's like Jermaine. Like he said, uh, he told me, he says, Jermaine, we need you up here in Washington with us. He said, you are one of the greatest, you know, uh, individuals I've ever met. And he said, we need you in Washington with us because of just how level-headed you are. 
I said, well, Rob, I said, I don't know if I'm going yet, man. I said, you got to wait on me, brother. So <laughs> well, I think I think the problem. Yeah. The problem we we really have to deal with is the fact that uh, we have too many politicians that really play it up for the cameras. And everyone assumes that that's how they really are in real life. And it can't yeah. be you know, further from the truth. I mean, some of them are. I think Ted Cruz is probably very much like he is on camera, but that's one exception to the rule. Oh, he slithers. Uh, yeah. That man slith. He is just the snakey. But out of out of all the people, there's always going to be exceptions. Overall, I think people will do what they have to do, you know, whether it's for fundraising purposes or they're trying to look good for their party on committee assignments and all that. But I think there is something to be said for people just being decent. Maybe it's also a South Carolina thing. I don't know. There's uh, a Southern thing there. We, we do we do have Southern hospitality. It is it is a real thing. It is a yeah. real thing. That is for sure. And and what I what I think is also important is you are looking at it from how do we be a bridge builder because yeah. there is. <laughs> You can cut the tension with a knife in this country right now. It is so hot. It is so vitriolic. But when you talk about this whole idea of, look, it's going to be hard for me to find anything in common with this gentleman who's far right. But if I try, maybe we might get somewhere. And one thing I try to point out on the podcast constantly is that while progressives and libertarians have a lot of differences We also have a lot of things in common on very specific issues, whether it's civil liberties. uh, We both tend to be very anti-war. And frankly, there's also a lot of commonality regarding healthcare because they know, libertarians know, that for-profit middlemen in between us and our doctors have no reason to exist. So we are able to find common ground if we just stay away from the wedge issues. I think we should stop labeling the people. Like you say, progressives and libertarians. I honestly believe it's just people who believe in reason. That's the whole point of like forward. Like it really isn't a left or right thing. It's a populist thing. It's a labor thing. It's a justice thing. They, the, the powers that be make it a left or right thing so that we sit here and fight amongst ourselves. It's not. It's a top bottom thing. Yeah, I, I really, I to be honest, I really don't understand the whole libertarian, progressive, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, uh, yeah somebody has said something to me, said, you're a progressive, but you're not my type of progressive. I was like, well, what the heck is it? <laughs> said, what, what the heck does that even mean? <laughs> I was like, I don't, yeah, I don't know what that means. You know, I don't know. I said, I'm just, I'm just a person who loves people, who understands that your experiences, all of your life experiences has brought you to where you are today. All of my life experiences has brought me to where I am today. And I can't hate you because you think the way that you think because of your life experiences, you know. So I, I'm just like, man, let's let's just talk it out. Like, I'm I, let's talk, let's figure this thing out. I'm let me explain to you exactly how I got to where I am. You explain to me exactly how you then maybe I can see it from your from your point of view because you can explain your life experiences, you know. And it's like, but I don't think enough people think like that uh, to where they're willing to hear somebody else's life experiences. No, that's true. I mean, we tend to live in eco chambers, in little yeah. echo chambers, rather. And people like that because it's very affirming. And yeah, it's very. I call them bobbleheads. I call them bobbleheads. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And, and that's what we tend to do. And I've seen it locally, I've seen it on the national level. And it, I just do what I do. Like, I don't care. I'll talk to anybody, I'll go on anyone's show, I'll have anyone on as a guest as long as they're respectful. Um, and I'll talk to anybody. My message is still my message. Like my goals are still my goals, regardless of who I'm talking to. If we have any goals that are similar, then we should work on that. You know, like, like wherever those things meet and I will never do it differently than that. 
I don't care what anybody's party is. I don't care what they believe on one issue or another issue. If we can work together on something, then that's what we're working together on. I think we can all universally agree that corporate special interest capturing our government is the issue of our time. And yeah. we all have to work collectively together to combat that issue. Sure. So you are currently the representative in State House District 80, but are now, because of redistricting, it's going to be House District 70. How much different is that district in terms of your ability to obviously campaign there and ultimately the demographics too. Mm -hmm. So, so the demographics, uh, you know, like I said, my district was, was like a 30% uh, black voting age population. Now this one, this new one that is, has been drawn is now 65%. Uh, so it's completely gerrymandered, uh, packed all in there. But the good thing is I, I live already in that area. So, uh, you know, everybody down there is related pretty much. Everybody down there is a cousin or an in-law or something like that. Uh, so we all know each other. Uh, the, you know, the, my constituents, you know, have relatives in the other district and the, in that district, you know. And so it's it's not too different than what I've already been doing. Uh, the good thing is I've already been I had been doing work in that district even before I was a representative of that district. So, you know, I I've never looked at district lines. I've always helped anybody that needed help. I've always you know done events in other districts and things like that, uh, because I believe everybody needs help. And just because, you know, somebody else doesn't relate to you doesn't mean I can't relate to you. So, you know, yeah, sometimes there's young people that reach out to me from all over the state and ask to, you know, they, they say, listen, I want to talk to you. I say, well, you know, I'm not your representative. They say, uh, they say I understand, but I want to talk to you though. You know? So, I mean, I talk to anybody and everybody that's all over the place, but it's not too, it's not too much different than what I've already been doing. Uh, I still get the same people. I still talk to the same people, still doing the same things. Uh, and I've already been a representative, but here's a little, here's a curveball I'm going to throw at y'all. So the NAACP and the ACLU, they actually sued the South Carolina General Assembly. Uh, and when they sued them, they actually settled out of court and won. So in 2024, my district is going to change again. It's going to suck. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to do this all over again. And my new district in 2024 will be District 52. Uh, and it will it will pretty much mirror what I have currently uh, in District 80. So I'm about to come up with a whole new slogan, a whole new name, whole oh new everything, all, all over again, <laughs> all over again. So I've been telling me, I said, man, I'm I'm probably going to go down in history as representing the most districts in South Carolina. <laughs> I mean, this is crazy, man. Yeah. But you know what? Good for them uh, for fighting back against the gerrymandering. It's obviously a huge issue. What are some of the other pressing issues? Uh, obviously, working in the state house because again, uh, people only uh, you know a lot of people from the outside, as, even if they're politicos, observe South Carolina just during the presidential primary it's every four poor. years. It's so, just so poor yeah. there, and it's just so in need of love. Yes, well, you know, we don't have a we don't, we actually don't have a minimum wage here, so we we just follow whatever the federal minimum wage is. So whatever the federal whatever the Fed said it at, that's what we kind of follow. So we have to establish a minimum wage before we can raise the damn minimum wage. You know, so we have that situation. We have, uh, you know, our state is, is pretty much uh, rural. So we uh, have issues with broadband infrastructure and COVID. The COVID situation really showed all the holes that we have in our state infrastructure, uh, you know, issues. Um, so that's a big problem. And then, the, and then the, the biggest problem we have right now uh, is pretty much the, uh, the, the, the shootings. We have a lot, of, a lot of killings, a lot of murders that are going on right now. Uh, here in South Carolina, uh, and it's not like anybody's trying to really trying to do anything about it. They're actually trying to make it more free to have more guns, and they're they're actually fighting for constitutional care right now. 
Uh, so that you know, it, that's that's a huge, huge issue. Uh, one of the things that I'm actually proud of that I got done uh, right before on the last final week of session was that I got an amendment uh, included into our budget this year that would create a whole new division inside of our Department of Health and uh, Environmental Control that would create a division to fight against gun violence. Uh, the Republic, so a couple of Republicans that were sitting in the back of the room didn't think I was going to be able to get it done, but I got it done. So it's in our budget right now, uh, and we'll be able to fund uh, grassroots organizations so that they can continue doing the work that they've been doing in our community. I mean, and let's not forget a lot of this is out of poverty and desperation yeah. and need. And that's the thing that people don't understand. Like, yeah, the mass murderers, the, the multi, you know, massacres, are horrible. And it's just, I can't even get started on that. But the majority of gun violence is not that. The majority of gun violence is handguns and it's people that are in vulnerable ways, whether it's suicide or marginalized or desperate or I don't know. I just think that if you didn't have so many hungry, homeless, uh, uh, underpaid people, that violence would sort of naturally subside. And that's also a a huge issue with a lot of people from the outside who don't know South Carolina, who think that Charleston is just like this perfect oasis by the water. And it's like it really is. uh, it, It is. But North Charleston is not. And there are a lot of issues that could be dealt with, but because of the gentrification and, and, and yeah. the fact that uh, economic opportunity is not as good as it should. I mean, the fact you don't even have a minimum wage and the federal minimum wage is a joke. So, you know, you can't <laughs> live on that. Um, th- there are those pressing issues. So what uh, what is it that, I, I don't know if there's really anything that we could do from the outside, but you seem like a fantastic representative. I mean, obviously, you know, you, uh, uh, we lost him. We lost I think, him. I think he, he looked was on his, frozen. He was on his cell phone. Yeah, so he we'll looked a if, little frozen. See if Maybe he'll comes call back. back. Yeah. No, he's a great candidate. Yeah. Columbia is a cool little little city. Like Jay, I drive I'm through there. I'm not 100 sure it might be Clyburn's district. I think not, it is. Think it because be. if he's the south side of Columbia, then that is as far up as Clyburn goes. Yeah. Clyburn's district. Well, I don't know what the new district is, but yeah. Okay, there. I was going to ask him because he overlaps with Marcel. You overlap with Marcel Dixon, don't you? I do. Yep. You live in Jim Clyburn's district, don't you? Mm. Yes, I do. Yeah, that's that's a problem for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what. Listen, I don't know who. I've never met Marcel. I don't know what he's got going on. I don't know what he's gonna do. Uh, but hey, you know, may the best man win. But I, you know, I, I doubt. I doubt Marcel uh, is going to be able to pull this one out because of you know just the the you know the just the clout and everything that that Congressman Clyburn has. I mean, he's third in line up there, man. I mean, you know. I, how do you how do you how do you defeat something like that? I don't well, know. it is a generational again, no pun intended, but it is a generational change that needs to happen. But it takes time. And the fact of the matter is, and this is something that we've all learned over the past handful of years, is that this change that we're trying to bring, uh, we're trying to push back against multiple generations of it being really bad. And now a lot of people like yourself have gotten involved. I mean, I know Jen doesn't really care about this, but. Jermaine is a former pro basketball player. Oh, for player. the love of and all that is holy. Ever, Everything is sports to you. Everything, everything is, is sports for you. Jermaine, what would life <laughs> be like without sports? And let me tell you something. Uh, 
Boston better get that turnover problem under oh, control or they're going down. Dude, seriously, what the heck was that last night, man? Well, I think what they were doing, they were running a box one up top with uh, with Tatum way too late in the game. It's like they should have been doing that in the first quarter. As soon as they if, – if they're going to run high screen pick and roll with, with Curry on every play and exposing Horford because he can't stay in front of him, then you have to do the same thing with Tatum on the other end because Curry can't guard anybody. I'm sorry, basketball's life too. So I, so you you understand? Don't make the adjustments back in Boston, though. So yeah, you you get it, you get it. But the point is, you probably never saw yourself in politics, and this just sort of happened, right? Yeah, that's exactly uh, what it was. I never thought I was going to be in politics. I didn't even know what politics really was. You know, uh, it it was it was one of those things that that was just kind of laid in my lap. Uh, the first person I met uh, that was in politics was uh, was a state representative. So I was speaking out against uh, this police stuff that was going on in my community. And I was kind of scolding the police because they, they had been doing crazy stuff to the young people in my community. But then saying that, they didn't, that we didn't have a problem in our community with the police and, uh, and community interaction. And I spoke out against that. And then the people were like, man, this guy is awesome. And they kind of gave me a standing ovation. And when I was leaving, uh, a guy tapped me on my shoulder. He was like, Jermaine, you're exactly what we need in our community. Like, you're like the future, dude. Like, we need you. Uh, and it was Representative Joe Neal. Uh, and State Representative Joe Neal uh, became my mentor at that time, you know, and he was kind of grooming me up uh, to take his place one day. Uh, and if y'all know who Representative Joe Neal is, uh, you can look him up. He's, he was instrumental in having the, uh, the, uh, the Confederate flag taken down of our, of our state house. You know, and he uh, and then, you know, when before we uh, were able to really do some uh, community events, uh, Representative Joe Neal passed away. Uh, so everything that I do is is with his, you know, with his memory uh, in mind. And, you know, I, I everything has, has been pretty much because of him. I think it goes without saying that the other thing that's kind of the appeal and one of the great appeals, I think, of people like yourself and like Andrew and other people that like Jen that are getting involved in this political process. Uh, we don't we're trying to get away from political lifers or people who just want to have a career in politics, <laughs> people that have either served in the community in other capacities. Uh, you know, we don't have enough teachers. We don't have enough social workers. We don't have enough firefighters. We don't have enough former athletes who have been pillars of the community. OK, wait, we're, the, say the team again. What team was it? You said what was your we, team? Well, he played uh, international ball. Yeah. He, he played, uh, oh, like yeah. I know because I know like it's really big in Europe. It's a really big thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played. I played in the NBA D League, uh, and then I also played in Brazil, Canada, Portugal, and Mexico. Oh my god, Portugal's the best, right? Portugal sucked. I like Brazil. <laughs> you mean it was the, I love Portugal. It's beautiful there. But that's uh, the, yeah. like, I was in. Oh, uh, you're talking about the team. Yes, it sucked, oh, but I. But I, I was a uh, what was I? I was in Bedians. I was in Bedians, like right across the river from uh, Lisbon. It's so beautiful there. Okay, you weren't saying Portugal, the country sucks. You were referencing no. the team experience. No, that, whole, that whole yeah, that whole thing it sucked. But uh, Brazil, I had a great time in Brazil though. Great time. <laughs> I great, think. And I think the one and listen, you had a phenomenal time uh, in the in the Mexican league. I, rem- I remember that. Oh yes, I yes I did. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't think people really appreciate. I mean, listen, uh, they say the hardest thing to do in professional sports is to hit a 90 mile an hour fastball that moves. And that probably is true. But I, don't know. I, I think people really don't understand 
when it comes to basketball, especially the level of conditioning that is involved and and how you have to maintain it. Uh, I always found it so amazing how Charles Barkley was able to basically just like take off the summer and then the season would come around and he would still be able to do it without maintaining shape. And it's like, yeah, Charles really is the exception to the rule because you cannot <laughs> you cannot take off. And it, it, it really goes without saying because I played basketball and you could be on the court literally for two, three minutes and you're huffing and puffing. Like it yeah. happens really, really fast. I like watching basketball. I have all yeah. love and respect for basketball. I don't understand how people that tall with feet that big can navigate around each other on that surface without having infinitely more accidents. This is what well, fascinates. It's extremely graceful. That's what I think. Yeah, it is. Well, we've been doing, we've been doing this for 20 plus years, you know, when, when you're a professional a- a basketball player, you've been doing it literally your entire life since you were like five. But I just find it fascinating. It's like the size of the hands and feet. Like, just like, I just, I would think there would be a lot more accidents. No, it's definitely, a, it, it's a game that, uh, it, it's the one game that I've always truly loved. I I wish I played it differently because I, I'm i 6'1 and I should have played it like a point guard. Instead, I played it like a forward. I never developed my handle. Uh, but I had the defense. Uh, How is I had this to about you? It. How do we get to this? I'm not, I'm just, I'm talking to a fellow. This is basketball. <laughs> we can't all just be about politics. You gotta yeah. have you have to talk about anyway. sporting games. But it was yeah. but but it's still great to watch. And and considering all of the hoopla and all the bad stuff that's going on these days, you know, it's nice to know that one of the great unifiers for a lot, especially yeah, a lot of men, uh, for sure. Uh sports really is a great equalizer in many ways. My many son's ways. middle name is after Avery Johnson. Really? Yeah, I'm a Spurs fan. And I actually was living, well, I lived in San Antonio and that's where my son was born. So I was living there during the Spurs when this, I mean, first of all, that whole team, you know, David Robinson, that whole team, they were like the nicest. They were just such gentlemen. I just, I love them. I love Coach Pop. It all I comes love, from him. I, well, he, I just, I love the whole thing and they're just such a good team and I don't know. So yeah, my son's middle name is Avery for Avery Johnson. And when people have asked him, he's like, I'm named after a Spurs player. I'm like, well, so, so my, my good friend, my good friend, Jeff, it, I gotta think, I gotta think of uh, what his name is now. So he was Jeff Pendergraph and then he changed his name to Jeff Ayers. So he played for the Spurs for a long time. So if you remember, he was about 610, he went to Arizona yeah. State. And he played for the Spurs. That's my good buddy. Uh, I have one of their championship jerseys he autographed for me oh, uh, nice. and, and sent it to me. Uh, it's a operation. Well, I, mean, I mean, Avery did hit the game-winning championship shot against the Knicks. So, you know, yeah. I remember that. I remember. And then my coach, my, my, uh, my coach uh, when I played in Canada, uh, is Jaron Jackson, senior. Oh, yeah. And now his son is doing really and now well. His son, is, his son is beasting in the NBA now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a well. I mean, look. I mean, the best player in the league right now is Giannis. But after that, I mean, Steph is really. Uh, you know, you look at a lot of these guys. You know, we're, we're from the same generation, and you're seeing a lot of these guys that had, you know, parents. Uh, Gary Payton's son, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, we got these guys that came up in like the '80s and the '90s, and now you're seeing their kids in the league. It's and cool. It's, yeah, and it's really amazing, you know. And they earned it because. When, when you're around that, when you can learn and hone your skills and know what you have to do, it's, it's really amazing. And, you know, the game is in a really good place right now. It's really great to see. Uh, and obviously from, you know, the perspective of obviously having played, it 
makes it a lot easier to connect with people when you're talking on the stump because it isn't just about politics. People yeah. want to know about your experience, what it was like being a ball player, what that whole. You want to it, know about that. Oh, of course I do. I am. <laughs> but it makes it a lot easier to say, shouldn't we have universal health care? Shouldn't we have a living wage? Shouldn't we be investing in a clean energy grid infrastructure? That's not what they're thinking about. Basketball players get so many women. The women they get the most amount of You're not sales. supposed to talk about that. They get the You're most not supposed amount. to talk. I You're admire that. I, I don't understand why they're not all aiming for Will Chamberlain numbers. That's, well, that's <laughs> No, man. If you have it, go. Whew, Listen, in my experiences, uh, baseball players get the most women. Really? In my experience, yes. And I got to tell you, never, I, I find baseball so unappealing on so many levels, all of it. I just find it unappealing. I just, I would, no, no. Yeah. I went to college with a bunch of baseball players and they get all of the women. So I used to hang out with them. <laughs> like, dude, yeah, yeah, let me hang out with you guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, they say that statistically speaking, it's the highest, the, hi, the highest probability of making a professional sports league is actually baseball. Well, that's because they have the most people, isn't it? No, it's... Uh, it's There's so many fewer well, people no, Well, it's Well, also, and this is a huge thing, too, is, um, and basketball's gotten better at this, the union, oh. go figure, this is politically related, the strongest union by far in any professional sport is baseball. Yeah, I'm so, not taking up a collection for any of those people. Well, I'm not saying that they need it. Let but, me tell you, know. you something. Those unions to me and the NBA union to me is kind of up there with like the idea of police union at this point. You know what I'm saying? Why do you say that? Mm -hmm. Because you've got you've got tall, rich men fighting with shorter, rich men over who should be richer. And quite honestly, you know, it's like everybody should just be thankful that you're able to do what you love and get paid to do what you love. I mean, you know, and I don't believe owners should be able to rape their players or anything horrible like that. But you know, the cost of just going to these games is astronomical. Regular people can't even appreciate sports. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know. I just find the whole idea. It's just like unions are for people that have no options. No, it's true. But for a very long time, players in professional sports and even in, you know, developmental leagues and things like that could never get, they can't get paid. Uh, so there is value to the union, but it all depends on how it's structured. And that, again, is the whole thing. One of the reasons, and I think this is a great place to close, Jermaine, one of the reasons why things are looking somewhat positive, despite all the, you know, like you said, you could cut the tension with the knife these days regarding all the political polarization. But there is a really strong budding labor movement in this country. Mm -hmm. I am wondering, how is that in South Carolina? Because we see the effects that it's having in other places. We saw the amazing job that Chris Smalls did with the Amazon uh, labor uh, distribution center in Staten mm -hmm. Island, which was huge. But South Carolina, like Florida, is a right to work state. And yep. there are huge problems regarding the ability to build a labor movement. Without a minimum wage. Yeah. So how are things going there? And how are you hopefully able to help push that message along? Yeah. So, you know, we've had a lot of protests and things going on uh, outside of our big manufacturing plants, trying to get things like that going on here. Uh, you see a lot of that stuff going on. But, you know, you don't really see it taking too much, uh, you know, making too much headway. Uh, we have a situation where I, I think our uh, our unemployment rate is like at three point three percent, but of course that that's a that you know that can give or take a few percentage points because of the way we calculate our un unemployment rate. But if you look at the numbers, we have more jobs available than we have people to fill them. So we actually you know move people into South Carolina to fill a lot of these uh, uh, jobs that are open. 
So, you know, we've got a lot of work to do here. Um, you know, I talk to the uh, Department of Employment Workforce often to get numbers and to see what more can be done. They're always trying to bring new uh, manufacturing plants in here. So, you know, they're paying people, uh, you know, quite a bit because they have to be competitive at this point. Because literally, if you got a job right now and you start and you didn't want this job, you could quit in the morning and have a new job by lunchtime. That's how that's how serious these companies are here in South Carolina about finding people to fill these jobs uh, openings that we have. So, you know, I don't I don't see us, you know, being able to to really build this union coalition uh, just because of the availability of jobs that we have right now. That's just it, it's very unfortunate because it, clearly you need that there very desperately. Um, and the yeah. that the unemployment unemployment rates are a mess for a lot of reasons. But, you know, when you've got people working three part time jobs because nobody's yep. going to give them a full time job to give them benefits. So they're working three part time jobs. That skews our numbers. Yep. So like, yep. I've never thought of the employment rate as a really good method of looking at how our economy is doing. Because, you know, if you can't, like to me, you should be able to work a 40-hour-a-week job at minimum wage and be able to live. Yep. That means yep. you should be able to have food, clothing, housing, you know, shelter, education, all of these things, right? Yep. And so uh, if, if you're not able to do that, then the level of employment is sort of irrelevant to me because it's employment in crappy jobs. Yep. Yep. Yes, it is. Yep. I agree with you 100 yep. percent. You are uh, and, and we don't say this lightly, but you are exceptional. Um, we really, really enjoy talking to you. And we definitely look forward to hopefully uh, not just speaking again, but when we are ultimately able to make it to South Carolina, uh, having the opportunity to meet Columbia is I mean, that's where everything happens. I'm so. driving through. I always drive through Columbia because I go to Asheville every year and I always drive through Columbia and we always stop at this one area. And I don't know the names of the areas, but we're always there for lunch. Like I'm always in the Columbia area right around lunchtime. And the area that it's just um, older, there's this old used to be a candy shop there and the it's just really cool. It's like a little village and I, and at like a downtown, maybe there's like an old train station or something. It's really cool down there. That's a little vague. Yeah, I, I know. I, yeah, I know what we're talking about. I know. Well, exactly it's a touristy kind of area, yeah. probably like people walk around down there. Cause that's where there was restaurants. Well, well you're right. You're right near uh, the university of South Carolina. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice that, I mean, I don't know. I, well, I like South Carolina and well, I like Southern hospitality. Can, can, help. Help Jermaine Canvas when you're driving through. You never know. I, if I, I, we're doing extra. we're doing Tampa to Asheville in a day, so I'm not gonna have my like I'm not if we don't we need to go straight through. Well, maybe so, at some point later in the summer. We'll stop. We'll stop by the next time and, and give me a call. I will. Johnson for SC.com. Guys, please go there. Make sure that you're following Jermaine on social media, and if you can sign up for phone text banking. If you can possibly, if you are in South Carolina and not too far from Columbia, please get over there to assist with any type of canvassing. Uh, the primary is, when is the primary day? Next Tuesday. Next Tuesday. So guys, this is the home stretch. Let's make sure that we keep this wonderful representative in the state house. Keep it going. Jermaine Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the thank podcast. You. We certainly look forward to talking with you again in the near future. Yeah, thank you all so much for having me. I look forward to coming back. Absolutely. Bye. Take care, man. See ya. Bye bye. He was lovely. Great guy. And definitely <clears> somebody <throat> who totally understands, uh, kind of like Marcel. You know, there's like people from the outside who don't really understand the whole, the whole like, this is Southern culture. This is what it's all about. Uh, and again, this whole idea, like you said, you know, don't bash, don't, don't vote shame. 
Like that is, but that's not something you would find in South Carolina. That's something you find in places like New York, California. Well, it's something that you'll find people from places like New York and California doing to the people in South Carolina who support a candidate that's pro-life. Yeah. They vote shame as opposed to understanding where that candidate is coming from and who he represents in that district, which is a more conservative district on that issue. But you have people, the neoliberal world that would shame them for that because they love that issue. If they were such a racist state, and listen, there's always going to be racists. South Carolina is definitely Dixie, but Tim Scott is their senator, and he's very popular. There's also a lot of people who think he's going to run for president and would have a shot. Now, I don't think so. I think right now, without question, it is the same. I don't think I even know who that is. Tim Scott? Is he related to Rick? No. Okay. No, he's black. I don't so anyway, I said I don't know who that is. Well, he ain't Lindsey. He ain't Lindsey Graham. Uh, I'll tell you that much. He's not Lindsey Graham. Is he? So he's got to be better than that. Yes. Well, anybody's better than Lindsey Graham. Yeah. It will be a very interesting Wednesday night. Uh, we did not really have a big crowd this evening. Maybe we didn't uh, have a good enough guest, but on Wednesday we. It's will. not about good guests. I love our guests. Yeah. It's just about what's click worthy and what people know and what looks sexy and they want to hear about scandal. Like if I had put you know, like a picture of Jimmy Dore on the thumbnail and said, we're going to be talking about this tonight. We probably get views, but yeah. it's, it, but I, I, it's just, it's Let not- me tell you something. What's so interesting is that the more comments we get, the more people tune in. So it's like our clip that I the, the one that I did with Jordan, when we were talking about Jimmy Dore and Glenn Greenwald, it's oh, got over 2000 views. I'm sure already, it has. So I'm sure it like, has. But there was a lot of merit to what we were talking about. We weren't just, you know, we weren't bashing them. We were talking Sometimes. about like whatever. It's well, when it's, war- well, when when it's, it's warranted, yeah. absolutely. We have a story time. We do. We so, have a story time. So tonight we will be reading an excerpt. That, it's actually not even an this excerpt. This is definitely one of the best graphics you've ever made. Hey, I, have I, to say. I know you love this one. So tonight we'll be addressing a, an excerpt from the Oligarch Chronicles, Tales of Emasculated Men Vying to Destroy the World. And tonight's subject is none other than this douchebag. Kevin O'Leary. Oh. Or AKA Mr. Wonderful, as he gave himself that title. Oh, he's such a douche. He is just such a douche. So I want to I want to explain to you guys why he is so terrible. And what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna read a little excerpt for you so you can see just how bad this guy is. Because everyone's talking about Kevin O'Leary because of the BS that he said about student loan debt. He likes socialism for big businesses. This is the same person who said that a business has an obligation to accept the triple P loan. So he he believes that socialism is good for, for him, but other people should get nothing. So he's he's special that way. No, he's very special. And what's interesting about him is that he set up a business in the mid 80s in Toronto. Um, this is also a guy who comes from an affluent family. What a surprise. Uh, O'Leary started SoftKey in Toronto in 1986, along with business partners, John Freeman and Gary Babcock. The company was a publisher and distributor of CD-ROM based personal software for Windows and Macintosh computers, major financial backer, committed 250K in development. That's a lot of money then and capital into the company back out on the day before signing the documents and delivering the check, leaving O'Leary looking for funding to support the fledgling business. He used the proceeds for selling his set share and convinced his mother, convinced his mother to lend him 
$10,000. This is 1986, mind you. $10,000 in seed capital to establish soft key software products. I mean, can't you just go and ask your parents for a $10,000 loan or what today would probably be about a $30,000, $40,000 loan to start a business? I mean, you could just do that at any time you want, right, Jack? It's just infuriating people that are like this. Like, I just find everything about this just disgusting. But it gets better. The software and personal computer industries were proliferating in the early 80s, and O'Leary convinced printer manufacturers to bundle SoftKey's programming with their hardware, which distributors assured that the company design, developed several educational software products focused on mathematics and reading education. Okay, good. You know what? That, that's fine. Not saying that that's a bad product or what he was doing was not something that had any merit, but he ultimately was able to build up this company. Uh, in 1999, TLC was acquired by Mattel for $4.2 billion. That's a lot of money. Sales and earnings for Mattel soon dropped and O'Leary departed. The purchase by Mattel was later called one of the most disastrous acquisitions in history. Mattel experienced a $105 million loss following the acquisition management had projected a $50 million profit. Mattel's stock dropped wiping out $3 billion in shareholder value in a single day. Mattel's shareholders later filed a class action lawsuit accusing Mattel's executives, O'Leary and former TLC CEO Michael Perrick of misleading investors. Misleading investors. Where have we heard that before? About the health of TLC <laughs> and the benefits of its acquisition. The lawsuit alleged that TLC used accounting tricks. Accounting, that is another name for price manipulation, which is illegal. Use accounts tricked into high losses, another illegal thing, and inflate quarterly revenues. Again, price fixing, illegal. O'Leary and his defendants disputed all of the charges. Mattel paid $122 million to settle the lawsuit in 2003. O'Leary blamed the technology meltdown and a culture clash of management of the two companies for the failure of the acquisition. O'Leary and backers from Citigroup made an unsuccessful attempt to acquire the video game Atari company Atari. O'Leary made plans to start a video gaming television channel that never came to fruition. So he's basically, there's a reason. He's a, he's a fraud. Well, there's a reason he's on a show called Shark Tank. He's a shark. Yeah, he he's, is a shark. He's a shark. So socialism for me, businesses have a duty to tap government programs. A duty. A duty. So basically socialism for the rich. Nothing for thee. Biden's student loan forgiveness plan is a horrible idea. <laughs> this is Mr. Wonderful. And of course... He is the embodiment of everything that is wrong with capitalism. It's capitals. disgusting, really. It he really is. He is an obnoxious, so self-centered, absolutely ass-backwards douche canoe. And he has been able to get away with this for a very long time. And again, there is a, there is a big problem with envy for the rich in the United States. And even though, as it is painfully clear, that O'Leary, well, let's just say skated on the law and was able to get away with what he was able to get away with, you know, he is the ultimate vet venture capitalist of the worst kind. He has no sympathy 
He has no regard for the law or anybody who gets in his way because he's ruthless. You just described like most of Congress. That's true. But O'Leary is a very rich man. Again. (laughs) He's regarded as somebody who, because he's on Shark Tank. Must know things. No. You know, look, there is something to be said for having this sort of mentality of I'm going to get what I'm going to get and I'll run over whoever I have to in order to do it. But you know what? Mark Cuban has ethics. Robert Hershevik has ethics. Barbara Corcoran even has ethics. Lori Grenier. Um, is it your... Uh, I don't watch that stuff. I'm forgetting his name. I don't watch um, that show. But Kevin O'Leary, is, is he's not a good guy. And that to me, I think is... That, that, that is as big a problem as anything. All right, what do we have coming up on Wednesday? Big night, Jesse guys. Jesse the Body Ventura. I really hope you don't do that. You I make won't. it because you kind of make it sound like he has a speech impediment instead of just his accent, which is just his accent. Yeah, well, he's got a good one. Minnesota. Jesse, Jesse Ventura from Minnesota. 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 Yeah. So I'm very excited about this. So we, I mean, I want to be somewhat organized. I mean, he's starting a new or he started a new Substack. Yes. And so he, you know, obviously wants to talk about that. But I feel like there's so many things to talk with him about. Like, I don't even know. Like, I feel like we need to somehow have like a focus. I definitely need to talk about the fact that he was able to win governor of a state as third party. Yeah. And, and, and just really talk party stuff with him because he's just so perfectly, consistently, reasonably nonpartisan. Like he's always consistent. <laughs> like it's just he. Yeah, I think this is going to be a very therapeutic conversation. I think he's uh, he is what a lot of us wish we could aspire oh my God. to in terms of the the political dynamic that we really need. And the reason why Jesse is also so great, not just because he's got a great heart and he believes in so many great causes, he really does not give a damn about your opinion or your hurt feelings. It's like. We've got a job to do. This guy was a Navy frogman in the Vietnam War. I mean, you want to talk about a tough guy. He's just, I, I just find him so incredibly independent thinking, reasonable, and properly patriotic. Yeah, he really is. I know. He stands for all the right things. I just, and I just really like him. I just like him. I, I just think he's, he's just cool. He's always been correct on cannabis. He's always been correct on most things involved and anything, civil liberties. Well, on yeah, war. On war and every, just criminal just, justice reform, the environment, healthcare. Yeah, and you know, he he chose not to run again. I, I just I find him to be an enigma, like very interesting. Yeah, he is, but he's certainly somebody who I'm telling you, if he had run for, if he was on the Green Party ticket in 2020, he would have caused a real problem. I wish he'd run in 24. Maybe he will. We'll see. That's we'll something ask. we have to ask about. We I mean, because we're going to have to we're ask him about we'll the Green Party thing. I know, I know. You know. But, but we'll, and we'll have to ask him about the party. But I'm just so interested, and I, and you know, I have read a couple of his books. They're he's just Democrits and Republicans, or Republicans, Democrit. Yeah, it's Democrits and Republicans. He's I comparing need to read him that. To and Crips. It's really good. Um, but just there's so many interesting things about him, and just you know, he just always been on the correct side of things. He has, and I so, just respect that. So. We hope you guys have enjoyed it. Obviously. Uh, it's a light crowd tonight, but that's okay. Maybe we're small but mighty. Yeah, we are. Well, hopefully Wednesday will be a lot bigger. We'll get the word out there. We might have a chance to promote it. Uh, we're leaving I'm town sure. on Thursday for the night. Going we're going Orlando. to Orlando. So that'll be fun. 
but again, we, uh, we appreciate you guys. Uh, thanks so much, uh, obviously for checking in. Hope you enjoyed the show. And what I will say to Mud Kaczynski, uh, I don't, I, I really have an equal amount of rage for people that hurt people. I do. Yeah, I do. I just, I think that there is this consistency with the school shootings that they tend to be um, teenage white boys. Yeah. Um, and they're boys. In, in the school they're shootings. I, I mean, I was specifically referencing the school shootings and I'm thinking of everything from Columbine to Sandy Hook to Uvalde. To, like they're just, they're, they're boys. Well, the guy who said, well, no, well, Uvalde is Latino, but again, there's many of these instances where. But they're they, young, uh, they're teenagers. They're, yeah, they're young boys. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Most of them are white, but they're not all white. And, and what is, again, you, you don't see, you don't see any women doing this. No, you really don't. You don't. So I just think that we need to address that. And, and I do think the fact Bo is correct about 60 percent of these of these people that are involved in these massacres have histories of domestic violence problems on their record in one way or another. Yeah. And so that that's something that doesn't get flagged and is one of the things that's considered a loophole, the domestic partner loophole in our gun laws. So, again, I. Um, if people want to make changes, there are certain logical laws that could be done that would actually address some of the numbers. But the reality is, is that you can make it harder. But if somebody wants to do that, there's just so many guns out there. Like, that's the problem with me at this point. Like you could let's say you stopped selling them. OK, there's so many out there. Like if somebody wants one, they're out there. Like, I just think that it's like trying to put a genie back in the bottle. Yeah, you don't want to let it out. <laughs> well, that, yeah. On that note, we'll see you Wednesday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.